0: You're listening to The Big Tent on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. And I'm your host today, Luke Fowler. I'm here with my co-hosts and colleagues from the School of Public Service at Boise State, Corey Cook and Jen Snyder. And today we have two special guests in the uh, studio, uh, Jen Pierce uh, and her daughter Annie. Jen is a professor of geosciences at Boise State, uh, and Annie is
1: a grad student.
0: Are <laughs> you a grad student, Annie? I think second
1: no. year grad student. No. <laughs> And he's in the first grade at Washington Elementary in Boise, right? Miss Peterman is your teacher. All
0: right, so uh, with Jen today, and I'm sure Annie's gonna chime in if she's needed. Uh, we're gonna talk about some uh, one of the burning issues that are affecting oh, the West. Oh, you didn't. And then I totally <laughs> that was coming. He's I, been preparing for two weeks to say burning issue. So, so today we're gonna talk about wildfires. But I want to say this, Jen. I hope you're prepared to carry the show because I spent all day coming up with that pun. So I really have nothing else to say. <laughs> so, uh, Jen is gonna tell us some stuff about wildfires. Uh, but first, let's start with this. You were a geomorphologist, correct? And also it took me like 30 minutes to learn how to say that word earlier uh what is that because i have no idea
2: well a geomorphologist is literally translated someone who studies the shape of the earth uh so geo earth morph shape um but what uh what we do in more practical terms is we study how glaciers and rivers and wind other types of processes affect the way the earth looks
0: all right. So uh, that's really interesting, especially out here in the West, right? Because we see rivers and glaciers and stuff like that change on a fairly regular basis or, well, I regular. Over,
2: um,
0: over <laughs> many years, not, over, not over like generations. Geologic yes, time scale. Right. Yes, right.
2: absolutely. So, I mean, we live in a very uh, dynamic place um, here in Idaho. We are really lucky to have um, beautiful rivers and canyons that we all like to enjoy, the high mountain ranges, the sawtooths that many folks may visit here over Labor Day weekend, which have been sculpted by by glaciers. Um, Here in the Snake River Plain we have more kind of wind processes acting and of course the underlying geologic controls such as the passage of the Yellowstone hotspot so there's Idaho is a great place to be a geomorphologist.
1: What are some of the subfields? So I'm interested, I'm fascinated in the field. And so Uh obviously you you study wildfires, but what are some of the subfields that people focus on? um,
2: So there's glacial geomorphologists, there's fluvial geomorphologists, there's desert geomorphologists. So kind of um, coastal Mm -hmm. geomorphologists, it's based on kind of the different regions and what the most important processes are that affect those. Also over longer timescales, of course, there's tectonic geomorphologists mm-hmm. so um, who are getting um, into these longer million-year timescales of uplift and, for example, the formation of the Colorado Plateau and things like that.
0: So. What does effluvian mean? <laughs>
2: Fluvial. Don't
0: pretend you weren't thinking it too, Corey. Oh, I knew. I, I just was waiting for you to say it.
2: Fluvial is a fancy word for rivers and streams.
0: Uh, so. That is a fancy word.
2: It is it a before.
3: fancy word. Jen, I'm curious how you came to be interested in, in wildfire, how you um, came around yeah. to working on that topic in particular.
2: Well, it was one of those things, as uh, you all understand, in academia was somewhat serendipitous. Um, I was at University of Oregon finishing up my master's where I studied the effects of dredge, mining on streams, so completely different. And uh, there was a new faculty member there, and he said, hey, I just got this um, grant to look at the effects, uh, long-term effects of wildfires on landscapes in Idaho. Do you want to do that for a Ph.D.? And I said, where? South Fork Payette. Yeah, (laughs) I want to do that. Uh, And so that's what got me interested in fires. So I spent my um, time as a Ph.D. student up uh, living on the South Fork Payette and studying long-term records of fire through layers um, in alluvial fans which are these deposits so you could actually use um, what's called radiocarbon dating to date times when past fires burn the landscape and come up with uh, history of fire so
1: and you do that by, by through the, through the, the water
2: um, so those records were reconstructed from sediment deposits mm-hmm. um, so following fires and of course we know this from modern fires um, fires have a profound impact on the landscape, and they reduce the, of course, or annihilate the vegetation, um, and that can greatly increase the risks of flooding and debris flows. So what I was looking at along the South Fork Payette were um, these layers of old fire-related debris flows, um, or, you know, muddy uh, kind of flood deposits, and charcoal. And you can actually date that charcoal, and so I can come up with a record of fires over the last 7,000 years. And I think the reason, you know, who cares, um, other than just being curious, right? But uh, the reason why this is important is it showed us that even prior to any fire suppression, kind of smoky Bear era, there had been large standard placing fires in the South Fork Payette about 1,000 years ago Mm. during a time when it was really warm and dry. So
0: those bears and their their fires always causing issues.
2: <laughs> um, so I do have a. So is the. Uh, Great, that's the takeaway. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> that's what you should all take away. Are, are bears and forest fires there's a relationship there. Right. So uh, is correlation the, is not causation. Yeah, is but the but south thank you. Work of the payed is that a particularly interesting area, like place to research fires for any reason?
2: Well, it was a good place to look at fires in ponderosa pine systems because first of all, that's where ponderosa pines grow, right? Um, but also, it's a very um, let's call it geomorphic sensitive area where um, that kind of erodible Idaho granite um, will um, have a big response to fire. So here in Idaho, we have fire-related debris flows often in the Idaho bath list. So it's a good place to study them because um, it was geomorphically sensitive.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to take a uh, quick break from uh, the Big Tent here on Radio Boise, and we'll be back when we'll talking more about wildfires in a few minutes.
1: Hey, it's Black Joe Lewis, and you're listening to KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise.
0: This is Radio Boise, community radio for Boise and beyond. On Radio Boise, and uh, I'm your host of The Big Tent, uh, Luke Fowler. I'm here with Corey Cook and Jen Schneider, along with our special guest, Jen Pierce, and her daughter, Annie. We're talking about wildfires. So, uh... Jen, I mean, clearly wildfires have been a big issue in the West. And I'll say, if you can't tell by the from the Southern accent, like I'm not originally from the West.
2: <laughs> You're kidding. I've only been out here <laughs> for a few
0: years. So wildfires used to just be something I heard about on TV. But the last few years kind of lived it, experienced the smoke and all this type of stuff. So I, I think it kind of begs the question for me and probably a larger audience here. Are wildfires getting worse or is it just we're re- realizing that they're a bigger issue? We're paying more attention in the news. We're talking about them more. So which one
1: is it?
2: Um, Wildfires are getting worse. So I always joke with people that I went to school for 12 years to tell you, you guys ready? (laughs) All right, there's bigger and more severe fires when it's warm and dry. <laughs> uh,
1: that's
0: brand new Shocking. information.
2: Shocking <laughs> information. Um, it's amazing I, you're
1: not a political scientist. <laughs> those are the kind of insights we usually come up well, with. Well, so I, I
2: don't know if I should say thank you <laughs> or not to that one. But, um, so yes, it, as, um, as the Western United, United States um, and in, indeed the entire Earth gets warmer, yeah. uh, we are experiencing more fires. Right. So that is um, absolutely, climate change has been shown um, through many studies, to be the primary cause of increased uh, wildfire activity since about the mid 1980s. And so, are they are they more frequent and more severe? Do we have a sense of w- what
3: worse actually means?
2: Yes. So, great question. Um, so. Yes, they're more frequent, yes, they're more severe, and yes, they're burning in ecosystems where typically we wouldn't experience very frequent fires. So as snow melts earlier off of our landscapes, again, for folks in Idaho, think about the Sawtooth Mountains, those forests which normally are too wet to burn, anyone who's tried to light a campfire when you're camping and it's really wet, I mean, you're not gonna get that thing started, right? So those conditions have to be right for those big fires, especially in those higher elevation, usually moisture So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum are our sagebrush steppe ecosystems where those systems used to be what we call fuel limited where they didn't have enough fuel to carry an extensive fire. Now those ecosystems have uh, been invaded by grasses such as cheatgrass and that cheatgrass provides a blanket of fuel um, to increase fire activity. The third factor I need to mention is that now uh, humans cause start eighty three percent of fires in the United States, so human ignitions also play a really big role in increasing fire activity.
0: Can you talk about a little bit more about those human ignitions? I mean, I, I assume like not eighty three percent are like purposeful arson based fires, but I mean, like, can no. you kind of talk about like where that might come from and what behaviors might lead to them?
2: So there's um, there's a couple different categories there. Of course, there's um, the the factors that we can't control, for example, if your car catches on fire, um, you certainly didn't intend that to happen, right? Um, but that um, had been a leading cause of fires, especially on that corridor between Boise and Mountain Home. Mm. Uh, that's actually a real success story where the BLM has partnered with other folks to um, create a, a, a corridor a Um, where they have mowed down, and you might notice it next time you're driving, um, completely remove, remove the fuel from the interstate to prevent those fires. Other types of ignitions are through negligence, so just not putting out that campfire. So all of you who are thinking of going or planning to go camping this weekend, really remember that um, that putting those campfires out completely is a is a big issue. Driving on um, on grass and having sparks from your car uh, catch catch that grass on fire, and then finally fireworks. Um, and exploding ordinances. So things that we know cause fires, but they're still somehow allowed. Jen, can you help us understand really what's at stake here? Because I think there
3: are probably folks out there who would argue, look, fire's a natural process. We've interfered with these natural processes for a long time, like for example, with fire suppression. And this is just part of what it means to live in the West. Is that is that the right story here?
2: Well, that's, um, that's a little part of the story, but um, what, uh, what we're finding out, again, through more studies and more data analysis is that the um, fire suppression, we were good at putting out fires, again, in that kind of smoky Bear era in the 60s and 70s when it was relatively cool and wet. So yes, we did suppress fires, but that wouldn't have been a very fi- fiery time anyway. What the studies show is that the underlying primary cause of recent large and frequent fires is is our warmer and drier summers. So it is a climate-driven process.
1: So in terms of ecosystems, is it, does the frequency making it harder for these Ecosystems to bounce back. I, was, I mean, so the Southwest of Payette just had, an, had a recent fire, right?
2: It, well, it had. Um, there's been multiple fires there. There was a big one in '89, and then other fires in 2000, 2004. Yeah. Um, we could keep going. Um, so those is um, there a
1: cumulative impact of that sort of frequency?
2: absolutely um, there's there's impacts both from those frequent fires and also when fires burn at kind of lower el- lower elevation ecotones so think about um, a, you know driving up to bogus basin and you go through the sagebrush step and then you get into that lower elevation forest those trees germinated hundreds of years ago when it was cooler and wetter if there's a fire in that lower elevation ecosystem those trees may not grow back so then we've completely changed that ecosystem type. Likewise for the sagebrush steppe, now that cheatgrass is a a major factor controlling that ecosystem, cheatgrass loves fire. So if there's a fire in sagebrush steppe ecosystem, um, unless there's a a lot of measures taken to prevent it, cheatgrass will likely invade those ecosystems and that cheatgrass will prevent sagebrush from growing back.
0: So over the long term, I mean, is there ways for us to, I mean, deal with this? Because you're saying, you know, it's drier and hotter. So, I mean, is this just kind of the reality of the world that we live in? Or should we, I mean, the government, by we, be taking better steps to try to prevent this?
2: Absolutely. Um, There's quite a few things we can do. And those um, range from the national and international scale to the local scale. On the national and international scale, um, of course, we need to start taking steps to address climate change, which is the underlying... Control of of these fires, um, so we need to change our our energy and fuel structures and really change the way we live on this earth um, to reduce CO two levels in the atmosphere. So that's the that's the big scale picture. On um, on the more regional scale, um, really um, understanding and mapping those areas that are important to us for ecosystem services for places where folks love to go and uh, and recreate and um, I don't know what the best options are but maybe taking management in terms of of thinning or different um, options there on the personal level don't start fires <laughs> just yeah. don't start fires N- no fireworks
3: put your uh, campfires out that sort of thing yeah yeah, yeah it matters to all of us okay
0: yeah, uh, I mean, so on that level, of course, like I grew up in the South, playing with fireworks, um, tons of fun there, right? But you know, I, and so the, some of the conversations around the Fourth of July about fireworks, and then the Boise police chief announcing that he was going to go out after any fireworks dealers if their customers started fires. I thought it'd be a very interesting conversation and luckily it didn't come to that because I wonder how much of that would have stood up in, you know, our legal processes. But I mean, those are some interesting kind of strategies in dealing with this from a management perspective because honestly, I mean, so there's only so much control we have over our environment. So what can we do, you know, to actually affect a change here? Absolutely. All right. uh, You've been listening to The Big Ten on Radio Boise and we're going to take a quick break. Thank you. Hey, I'm Johnny from Happiness and you're listening to KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise, community radio for Boise and beyond. Can you read this in French I'm Johnny. Je suis Paul. From Happiness.
2: The Happiness. And you are listening to Et KRBX. Et vous écoutez KRBX
1: 89.9
2: FM. 89.9 FM.
0: Caldwell, Boise. À
2: Caldwell, Boise.
0: Love yourself.
2: Aimez-vous, oui. les gens
0: so, we're back on the Big Ten on Radio Boise, and we uh, have a couple special guests in the, uh, in the studio with us today. Uh, Jen Pierce and her daughter Annie. And Annie wants to start off this third segment with a joke for us. You
2: ready? How do you. Which key fits in a banana? Which key fits in a banana? No,
1: I don't know. I have no idea. We don't yet. know. No idea.
2: Hey, monkey. <laughs> oh,
1: nice. I did not see that one
3: That's a classic. That's now, That's a
1: classic. I believe I believe Corey has a joke no, 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 for us too. I'm good. Are you
0: sure? I'm
3: oh, yeah. dear, uh, dear, been... dear listeners, I wish during the break you could have seen Dean Corey Cook be so excited that we were going to do I jokes. I have
1: I have young kids and I have a whole bunch of terrible jokes, but I I think we'll we'll save them.
2: We'll, we'll intersperse them. Yeah, got another one. Yeah, yeah, no one? Do you have another one? She's going to think about it. Okay. All right. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll come back. Why don't
3: fish play
2: tennis? Why?
3: Because they might get caught in the net. <laughs> oh, that's so good. All right. So well, that's that's. Thank you, hang Annie. on, we're
1: just gonna do this for eight more minutes. I'm sorry, this is awesome.
3: Right. A- actually, Luke has a really great joke to oh, yeah. tell about yeah. the federal government. Yeah, it's, a, oh. it's a
1: burning, it's another burning issue. So hang on.
0: Yes. Uh. So the the real joke here is on us and uh, our government. Um, No. uh, So a serious story, uh, as Corey informed us earlier, uh, apparently Congress has voted
1: not to give... uh, Uh, President Trump announced today that we will not be giving raises to federal employees due to the the, uh, fiscal budget situation of the federal government. So
0: uh, let's talk a little bit about what that means, uh, particularly uh, as Idaho is considering whether or not what they're going to do with uh, their salary and benefits to Idaho State employees. It seems like a timely issue.
1: Well, certainly creates uh, and the, the initial initial feedback is certainly the political one, right? Which is that we've got a, a budget that's this coming due, and will, will there be another another government shutdown in October? Uh, there are a number of vulnerable Republicans in Northern Virginia who have already come out announcing that they would not. Uh, follow the the president's lead on this. And so the initial read is, what does it mean in terms of, of, of politics and how will this affect the, the midterm elections and the president's relationship with Congress? The policy issue, obviously, is the more interesting one, though, right? Rather than the, the sort of pundit question of what does this do in terms of the partisan balance, but what does this do to federal employees who have just been told by their president that they don't deserve pay raises in a time of, uh, uh, really, the economy's doing pretty well. So.
3: I mean, it's hard not to see this as another symbolic slap in the face of the bureaucracy. I mean, everybody remembers, uh, you know, presidential advisor Steve Bannon talking about dismantling the bureaucratic state. And now they're being told, like Corey just said, at a time of relative prosperity, that they're not going to get even a 2 percent uh, raise. I, it's hard to imagine that being received well.
0: Well, you know, so it, it's interesting Uh I mean, every modern president has run against the bureaucracy, right? Every modern president, and including the year that Ford and Carter ran against each other, and they both ran against the bureaucracy. So everybody always points to this, but what we rarely see is the president running against his own bureaucracy, right? right? <laughs> Which seems contradictory to a certain point. Um, and so it's interesting to see this, but we're also talking about 2.2 million federal employees who are 2.2 million voters. Um, and so I, I wonder what the p- political calculus is here and how many they, and particularly when you're looking at Northern Virginia, where you have tons of federal employees, and whether there's going to be backlash associated with that, whether these candidates or these employees are going to go looking for a new candidate that's willing to uh, show them some some respect uh, or some dollars. Yeah, I
1: mean, Republican Barbara Comstock, who is one of the most vulnerable Republicans in the House, immediately came out and said, "I don't agree with the president on this." Obviously, she's a prime pickup for, for Dems in in Virginia. It is clearly creating a rift between. A, a number of sort of rank and file Republican House members, um, but I think your, your point earlier, right? You have a president who's certainly running against his own intelligence community. Um, obviously, he's taking swipes at his own uh, FBI. He's now taking swipes at his own at federal employees. I mean, this is a, this is from a public management perspective, an interesting time to be a public employee.
0: Well, yeah, and you know exactly. And uh, I guess months ago, or got a. Uh, um, a year and a half, two years ago when Trump took office, having this conversation with some friends about, you know, whether uh, Trump was capable of building, uh, building, you know, some type of like dictatorship or whatever. I was like, yeah, he is. But he had, because at the time he's, Surrounding himself with people with personal loyalty, right, and that you're you're building this way, right. but he has to build that through the entire bureaucracy. Um, and so the question is, is it, as he comes into office and he goes, these people aren't doing what I'm saying, and he continues to attack them. How does he really expect his agenda to play out over the long term if he continues to attack the people that are supposed to put it into place? Um, and you see this type of stuff, particularly at the EPA, right? I mean, Scott Pruitt did a really great job of de deregulating everything, right? Dismantling a lot of Obama-era policies. But rank and file EPA employees weren't getting getting along with that. And they definitely put up obstructions time and time again. And uh, certainly we all know from our own lives and careers that if uh, people don't want to get on board in a bureaucracy, they can stop stuff. And obstruction is a very powerful force.
3: That said, I feel like it was last year that the Federal Employee Satisfaction Survey showed that uh, broadly speaking, Um, employees of the federal bureaucracy were pretty satisfied there were a couple of examples where that wasn't the case EPA being one but it will be interesting to see if really nothing comes of this or if in fact like you said there is sort of a uh, making the wheels turn just a little bit slower
2: yeah I love. I mean, listening to political and social scientists trying to actually make sense of <laughs> people like President Trump. I, my job is much, much easier. I'm going to, you know, try to stick to the science.
1: Well, so to, to connect the two, right, the federal employee, BLM or federal employees. Absolutely. Right? And so, so we often think about what are the effects going to be in places like Virginia. but. You know, we have Idahoans who are state, federal employees who are working on things like wildfire preve- prevention and man- you know, management. Absolutely. And so, you know, how does this? You know, this is not just a faceless government bureaucrat in D.C. problem. This is now BLM employees in the state of Idaho who are suddenly. Being told by the president they're not getting pay increases.
0: Yeah, and again, I'll go back to that that number. It's about 2.2 million federal employees in this country. I mean, that is a huge workforce, and those are just the direct employees. Um, there's about another 14 million that are indirect contractors and, wow. and serving other roles. So, I mean, we're not we're not talking about like a couple of people that are in Washington. We're talking right. a, a workforce that stretches uh, across this country, and is one of the largest economic sectors. Um, and so, this has really big ramifications for our country.
3: I mean, in some of those bureaucracies, too they're really stretched thin right because in places like the state department for example there's a lot of appointments that haven't been made a lot of spots that haven't been filled and so i'm wondering if you have a really sort of stretched thin workforce and now you're not going to give them their two percent raise. No, absolutely. Well,
1: and speaking purely in self-interest, right? So we all work at Boise State, and we work with with, with students who, many of whom, want to go into public service of some form. Mm-hmm. And so, what is the message for people who want to go into wildfire prevention, right? Or what is the message for for students who want to, um, you know, work to make their communities better? Exactly. In terms of well, and
2: I, I think that you know, for for my students, I have um, a lot of students who go in to um, work for for the Forest Service, for the BLM, and um, doing both the science they love, but really doing a service for the community. And it is hard to know what message to to send them in light of this. Well, and I, I
0: think as somebody who has spent, you know, my entire adult life, like studying how to make government better, there's some contradiction here, right, where we go, the government doesn't work right, and, run, and Trump's out there running against it and bashing the bureaucracy. How we're going to fix it is we're going to cut government salaries and go out there and tell them how bad it is, right? And, may, and make these jobs seem as worse as possible. But it seems to me, would it, would it make more sense to pay these people well, to attract the best and the brightest into service for our country, and that's the way we fix the bureaucracy, not by making it seem like the last-ditch effort of you know whoever can't do other things doesn't work for government? Um, And So there's some contradiction there if Trump's going to run against the bureaucracy but doesn't plan to fix it.
1: It's hard to imagine other industries that being the message from a CEO to say the way we're going to turn our company around is to pay our workers less and increase their dissatisfaction.
3: We're going to demoralize you and cut your pay.
1: (laughs) There's tons of corporations that do that. They just don't announce. Exactly.
3: They just just
0: keep it to themselves, right?
3: (laughs) Well, good. Hey, Jen, we want to thank you so much for coming in today and talking to us. And Annie, Annie, thank you. Annie, thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome.
0: So, this has been the Big Ten on Radio Boise. 89.9 89.9 FM Caldwell Boise KRBX. I don't think I got that backwards this time. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, I've am i been your host, Luke Fowler, I'm here with my co-host and School of Public Service at Boise State Colleagues, Corey Cook and Jen Snyder, and our special guests, Jen Pierce and her daughter Annie, also from uh, Boise State University. Thank you all for uh, your comments today. <laughs>
3: and join us next week. We'll see you then.